This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. When I was a kid, my grandmother used to have this somewhat maudlin painting of a Civil War soldier on her wall. The soldier was wounded and clearly on his way out, and he was being attended to by this angel, this very pretty and comforting-looking blonde woman who was sort of floating above him. I mention this picture not just because it's a little bit odd that my grandmother would have had a painting of someone dying on her dining room wall for all those years, but also because that angel, ethereal, comforting, feminine, pretty much represents everything that I tend to think of when I think of angels. I think that's probably true of most of us, actually, because images like that, and of winged babies, are the main ones that we see of angels. Actually, though, these kinds of angels are a pretty recent phenomenon, and they're not really based in any kind of historical, biblical context. In the Bible, angels were powerful and awe-inspiring, and often really scary. If not that, they just look normal. No wings, no floaty gown. Today on Fordham Conversations, we're talking about the evolution of angels, why we think about them the way we do, and why we shouldn't. My guest on the show this morning is Claire McPherson. McPherson is, among other things, an adjunct professor of theology at Fordham and an Episcopal priest. He's currently researching the idea of angels in pre-Christian societies, in the Bible, and in popular culture. A little later on the show, we'll learn a little bit about Brooklyn's Hasidic Jews and how they use language. But first, I spoke to Claire McPherson earlier this week in our studios. Claire McPherson, thanks so much for talking with me this morning. My pleasure. Good to be here. Now, let's start at the beginning. When do creatures that could be described in some way as angels first appear? Creatures that could be described in some way as angels have been around since prehistory, as far as we can tell. The gods of Hinduism could be described as angels. They're usually not labeled that way, but I have some good arguments that they could be. Because they are supernatural beings, but they are not creators, they are not omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, they have more in common with the Western tradition's angels than with the Judeo-Christian God. So you could say it that way. That means they slipped back into the mists of prehistory hundreds of thousands of years ago. More recently, I could say, historically, virtually every early culture has had creatures that could be described as angel-like. Most familiar would be the ancient Greeks. When people think of angels today, what do they tend to think of? Describe that to me. This is what people think of when they think of angels. They think of creatures dressed in white, having a pair of wings, usually having a halo. Uh, that's really about it. That's what, they, that's what they imagine. I have a friend that draws cartoons for the New Yorker, and I've asked him to visit my classes often, and we've said, draw an angel on the board as you would draw it in a cartoon so the people would know what it's supposed to be. That's inevitably what he does. So he draws somebody with wearing a sort of a gown with wings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a trivialization of the tradition. Uh, the, 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 the traditional angel is a lot more powerful than that. Um, but it came out of aspects of the tradition. For example, the harp is there because one of the three functions of angels in the Hebrew scriptures is that they're the heavenly choir. So we put an instrument in their hands. And the harp or the, the lute or the lyre was, is, is one of the most ancient of instruments, along with the flute and the drum. The halo simply is 
a symbol in art for a sacred being. In other words, a saint, and all angels are saints. Simple as that. Um, you know, the holy family is also shown with, 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 with halos, and virtually every saint of the world is shown um, with a halo. The wings are another matter. Angels in Scripture are trying to relay messages to human beings from God, or vice versa. Now, their purpose would not be to startle anyone, so to appear with wings would be counterproductive. The angels who appear to us in Scripture look like us, maybe just a little more splendid. But the wings have a reason. Number one, there were all those winged creatures in antiquity. Uh, human beings have always been fascinated by what Germans call the Mischwesen, the mixed being. We like werewolves, we like centaurs, so to put a pair of wings on us is a natural. It's also you know, it's, it's a frequent subject of dreams. Everybody wants to fly at some level or other. It seems freeing. The other thing, though, is the fact, the fact of the matter is, until very recently, birds were the swiftest thing we knew of. Bird flight symbolized the fastest thing we could think of. So to put a pair of wings on an anthropoid figure suggested speed. Today, when you do think of an angel, sort of, it's usually a woman. Um, it's yes. wearing this gown. It's got these big feathery wings. Um, you know when you think about it that it's actually sexless, like G.I. Joe. Where did that image come from, and what were the original images of angels like? The first Christian angels that, 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 that appear, as I like to put it, on the screen, uh, appear as so many things in Christian art. All of a sudden, they're there. They suddenly, they, for, for the first four centuries, the Christians don't depict any angels. Then suddenly, fifth century, they appear in mosaics, in Constantinople, in Ravenna. Suddenly, we have angels, and they are recognizable as angels. They are actually androgynous. They do wear what you would call robes or something, but that was street dress then, you see. That was a tunic. Uh, they do have wings, for the reasons I suppose that I've given. Also because by that time, cherubs and seraphs had been identified as angels, and they do have wings. So perhaps all the, all the angels then got wings. They do appear as androgynous. They do not appear as women. On the other hand, they never have beards either. They always appear as, could go either way, ambiguous. Very recently, they become ladies. The first, uh, th that begins to happen in a way in the Renaissance, but most of those, to my eye, are just Renaissance painters drawing very effeminate-looking androgynous creatures. In the 19th century, they start to be recognizably female. What are the precursors of the way that the angels are portrayed in the early uh, Christian portrayals, there's, uh, there's non-Christian precursors, aren't there? Certainly. A very concrete non-Christian precursor of the angel is the Lamassu in Assyrian, or again, in Hebrew, the cherub. That doesn't look like what you're thinking of. Most people, when you think of a cherub, you think of a fat little naked thing with, a, with wings, correct? Right? Yeah, a baby. A cupid-like thing, a baby. The original cherub was nothing like that. It was about eight feet tall, 
had at the head of a man, the body of a bull or a lion, and gigantic eagle wings. You can see one at the Metropolitan Museum. Go to the Middle Eastern Gallery there. Actually, you can see two. Those are, those are, those are what become very effective guardian angels. That's what God stations at the Garden of Eden. I always say to my students, if God had put one of those little putty Cupid figures, that would never have kept me out of Eden. A cherub is another matter. He's formidable. He's powerful. That's a precursor of angels. Those are the kind of things that really made up the tradition when it was serious. So if these pre-Christian versions mm -hmm. of, I guess, sort of angels... Yeah, sort of angels is a good way to put it. ...are point A, and the way we think about them are point B, how did we get from point A to point B? You mean the modern version, whether the cartoon version and the 19th century lady version? That's, that's a process that um, I think of as the, the trivialization. As, 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 as the world became more secularized, it was easy to trivialize elements of the faith, and that this is one that got trivialized. Angels traditionally were, were much more serious than that. Now they are either sentimental or comical. Right? But they're handy for the popular culture because they're, they're less theologically specific than God or Jesus or Moses or Muhammad. So that's why you will find movies and television programs and things like that based around angels. It's something sort of everybody can take because nobody knows exactly what they are and they, everyone feels eh, gooey about. Um, you would not feel that way about Michael the Archangel. He was a mighty and mighty figure, beautiful in the right way, in a powerful kind of way. But people have kind of lost, lost that. Even Orthodox and Catholics have, 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 have lost the sense of the awesomeness, to use an, over, an overused word correctly, the awesomeness of a figure like Michael the Archangel. That doesn't happen anymore. Angels, angels now are appearing, as I say, New Yorker cartoons and Christmas cards. They're sweet and they're lovely, but neither the Cupid-like baby cherub nor the, the lovely female angel would have to say, fear not, if they appeared to you. And so often in scripture, that's what an angel, even a benevolent angel on a mission of mercy with a good message from God will say, do not be afraid. listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. I'm talking this morning with theologian Claire McPherson about angels. In a few minutes, we'll talk about how Brooklyn's Hasidic Jews use language with Fordham anthropologist Ayala Fader. First, though, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Claire McPherson. It's no big secret that elements, lots of elements of Christianity came out of earlier religions that people took parts of. When angels first appeared in, in the scriptures, as we spoke about, mm -hmm. were they drawing from traditions that were already there? And tell me about that. I would say that when angels appear in the New Testament, they are coming out of the Old Testament tradition. 
they are the angels of Judaism out of which out of which Christianity was was emerging. Old Testament on the angels uh, angels on the other hand, yes, definitely belong to the global culture of deep antiquity, which is why they have things in common with Mesopotamian figures such as we started with Pazuzu or with the Lamashtu or Lamasu or with the cherub. Um this was a, a, an eclectic religious culture of antiquity, and the, and the Hebrew scriptures just shared these figures with everybody else. Now, as I say, Christianity, in terms of angels, essentially was doing the same thing as the Judaism from which it was just emerging. On the other hand, Christianity then felt free from the second century on to borrow right and left. The biggest, most revolutionary thing that Christians did in terms of appropriating Gentile culture, was to break the second commandment and start making pictures. That happened early on. It must have taken a lot of chutzpah to do it, but they did it. And of course, of the three Abrahamic traditions, the Christian is the one that has by far been the most visual. Islam and Judaism tend to stay very shy of images. Their art is primarily abstract. Christians have been doing representational art from the second century. Um, they've rationalized as to why they could do it, but basically I think the reason is they, they emerged from Judaism, kept that layer, but became Hellenized. And Greek culture is very, very visual. The Greeks loved to depict things. As you know, there were statues everywhere. It was also polytheistic. Yes and no. When we say the word theistic, we are thinking of our God. We're thinking of the God of monotheism, who is omniscient, omnipresent, <laughs> omnipotent, who is also moral and just and the creator of ethics and is also the creator of the world. The Greek gods were none of those. Hermes and Apollo have more in common with our angels than they have with God's. That's why I'm just adjust, adjusting that. Yes, they were polytheists, but we need to clarify exactly what we mean by that. I like the idea in um, the polytheism, whatever, yeah. of the Greeks that there's gods and they're just sort of supercharged people who are going around they are. doing things and, you know, just being jerks or being really nice, but mostly being jerks. Um, yeah, I've always often made the point that um, in terms of power, intelligence, uh, ability to morph himself into other things, Zeus is far my superior. But morally, I think I'm a little better than he is. He behaves like a, a like 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 a like a silly middle-aged man in a sitcom. Right? I like to think I'm a little better than that. So morally, the Greek gods may be a little bit lower than we are. Ethical monotheism really is something that, that the Hebrew tradition brought into human consciousness. We, we think of God and good as words that go together. Really, it was the religion of the Israelites that brought, the, that brought them together. So what did these angels, what did people imagine that angels did? In, in the Hebrew scriptures, the, people believed that angels did three functions. They were the heavenly army. At several, scattered through the Old Testament, let's say, there are, there are images of the army of angels. That's what the word host means. 
The word heavenly host means not heavenly crowd, but heavenly army. It's related to the word hostile. That's one of the functions. They're warrior angels. Number two, they're the choir. And third, they are angeloi. They are messengers. Therefore, they deliver messages, such as the message that the angels brought to Abraham, that despite the fact that you and Sarah are great-grandparent age, she's going to get pregnant. That was, a, that was typical angel acting as messenger. In the, the Greek myths and the, the old stories, gods are often talked about as sort of sitting around, passing the time. Were angels thought to sort of sit around and pass the time? In the book of Job, that seems to be, it looks as if exactly what they do. In the book of Job, angels seem to be the heavenly, the, the part of God's heavenly court. Not so much in the sense of a trial court, but in the sense of a desert sultan's court. So they do sort of sit around and act like that. But in the developed Christian tradition, it's rather than sitting around, they're more likely always on the move, always doing one of those functions. Do people still think in a serious theological way about angels? I think some people are beginning to think in a serious theological way about angels again. This is related to a, a, a larger phenomenon I, I believe I'm seeing. Theological study for the past, say, 300 years or so has been very analytical. We've been very much analyzing things, taking things apart. I believe now we're in the process of synthesizing. I think that is, we are, we are in, in our generation, beginning to do that. And, a pro, and part of that process, I think, will be recovering the serious tradition of angels because they do make sense. They, can be, they, they were trivialized, but they, they do have a certain value, and they do, after all, have a lot of um, um, scriptural authority behind them. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Ahead this morning at Cityscape with George Bodarkey. That's ahead at 7.30. But first, Borough Park is a mostly Hasidic community in South Brooklyn. Its neighbors include Flatbush and Bensonhurst. It's a community where, walking down the street, you might hear a lot of a language that you might not hear that often, Yiddish. Ayala Fader is an assistant professor of anthropology at Fordham. She's been researching the language and the lives of Borough Park's Hasidic community for several years. Fader's the author of the book Mitzvah Girls, Bringing Up the Next Generation of Hasidic Girls in Brooklyn. That book's forthcoming from Princeton University Press. I spoke with Fader about her work in our studios. I began by asking her what it means if someone's Hasidic. Hasidism as a movement started in um, Central Europe in the mid-18th century, and it was, um, it's a messianic movement. It's also a movement that some people call democratizing. It was a movement that was not elite. There, at that time, mainly elites studied the Torah, and rabbis had a lot of power. This was a movement that said that anybody could reach God through ecstatic prayer. The majority of Hasidic Jews were killed in the Holocaust because of Polish Jewry. Um, was basically wiped out. And after World War II, Hasidic Jews, really the leftover refugees in a way, immigrated to the United States and other urban sites transnationally. There's a community in Britain. There's a community in South Africa, all over, usually in urban sites. And there they tried to repopulate their communities and really reconstruct. These communities, a lot of people don't really speak English, is that correct? Well, language in these communities are gen is gendered. Boys and men primarily speak Yiddish. They have to learn some English, and as they get older and get married and have children and frequently go out to work, their English improves. 
but it's really women who are the primary speakers of English. One of the things that I saw in my research was that young children are bilingual Yiddish English speakers, both boys and girls. But once girls begin to enter first grade, they shift and they start speaking more English than Yiddish. And boys m remain really Yiddish dominant. Now, living in New York, we do hear Yiddish words probably sprinkled more into the language than um, than you would hear elsewhere. Mm -hmm. But I know, at least for me, Yiddish is something that's it's a little bit mysterious. Can you give me a little bit of a primer on Yiddish and where it's spoken? Sure. Yiddish is originally, people think that it originated in what's now part of Germany and parts of France. And it, when Jews immigrated to this area, they took the variety of German that was being spoken and they transformed it into a Jewish language. So there's a lot of German to the language, but it's written in um, Hebrew orthography. So there's it's Hebrew letters with a very strong base of German, but then Jews from that area after a thousand years began to migrate east. Um, the language acquired a lot of Slavic elements too. So it's a mixture of Hebrew, Slavic, German and some other Romance elements to the language that it acquired while it was really being born in that area of Germany and, and France. Today, Yiddish is spoken mainly by Hasidic Jews. It was the primary language of a huge number of Jews in Eastern Europe before World War II, but then with the Holocaust, most of the speakers of Yiddish died. There was a thriving secular Yiddishist movement with its own literature and its own brand of radical politics. And those Jews who immigrated to the U.S., either before the war or after, eventually did not pass on Yiddish to their children. So that variety of Yiddish is no longer spoken. There's been a small resurgence, which is interesting, among the grandchildren of those Yiddish speakers who now like to take Yiddish in college sometimes. I learned Yiddish at Columbia. I wasn't a native speaker. I met other graduate students who were interested in studying secular Yiddishist literature and who were really sort of looking at Yiddish as another way to be Jewish. But that's very different from the Hasidic use of Yiddish. Well, getting back to Brooklyn, this might sound funny when we're talking about Brooklyn because it is part of New York City. But what is the culture of the Hasidic communities in, in New York City and especially Borough Park? One of the interesting things about Hasidic Jews in Borough Park, the neighborhood that I spent time in, is that it's not an isolated community. It's not people often compare Hasidic Jews to Amish. And in some ways, there are some parallels, but Hasidic Jews are living in a, quite a diverse neighborhood. And even though there are many, there's a large Jewish population in Borough Park, there are lots of other people living in the neighborhood. There are Italian Americans right next door to Borough Park. There's Sunset Park filled with Chinese just... On the other side, there's a huge Latin American community. So it's quite a diverse neighborhood. In general, one of the most interesting findings for me was that Hasidic women in particular participate quite actively in the world around them. They often work in the Hasidic community and sometimes out. They buy ready-made clothes, even though they dress differently than the majority of people do who are not Hasidic. I would say everyday life is really focused around the Jewish calendar in a lot of ways. There's Sabbath every Friday night to prepare for that girls help their mothers with. And there are many, many holidays over the course of the year that girls help prepare. And um, it's a lot of work. You mentioned the gender differences just now. 
how else does this community differ from what you might think of in a conservative religious community? I guess one of my initial surprises was I expected, you know, it's a patriarchal religion. It's men who make most of the decisions regarding religious practice. It's men who have access to sacred texts. So men are really the religious authorities in this community. So I began my research expecting that women would be more passive, maybe a little more subdued, perhaps disempowered. And it was really my own biases, I think, coming from a more liberal feminist perspective, because in fact, women in this community seemed very powerful to me. They were aggressive. They thought I was kind of quiet and retiring. And they seemed very clear that they were making a choice about a certain way of life. And they didn't seem to have any doubts or have any regrets that they were missing something in the secular world. Many of the women that I met seemed very confident that their way was the only, number one, authentic Jewish way of life, so that other forms of Judaism really weren't authentic, and also that they, as Jews, in some ways had a monopoly on the truth, that their way was the only way, and that they were the chosen people. So did you go into this community with a very specific idea of what you were going to look at? Yes. I was trained as a linguistic anthropologist, and I was really interested in language, and I knew that gender was a key issue in terms of linguistic competencies. However, I realized that even though what I had suspected, that young girls were shifting to English after um, first grade, no one really cared. I talked to a lot of women about language issues, and they said, yes, yes, girls do speak more English. And we talked about the different varieties of English and Yiddish that were sort of evolving in the community. But it wasn't a central concern. What was much more of import to um, the women and the girls that I was meeting was issues of modesty, bodily modesty, and also comportment and speaking modestly. Being modest was a real concern. And in some ways, modesty is really definitive of Hasidic femininity, which is what these girls were basically acquiring from you know infancy on. And so I was got really interested in how Yiddish fit into that idea of femininity in terms of modesty and other markers of femininity, like stockings, like skirt length, what kind of skirt. A denim skirt is not as modest as a skirt made of a different material because it's too much like Gentiles. And the word that um, a lot of Hasidic women use is modern to depict a kind of Jew who is too much like Gentiles. So a denim skirt might be too modern. So, so what did you find in terms of the whole language thing? I found that what Hasidic girls and their mothers were basically doing was focusing on continuity. And it was really a historical fluke in a way. Because Hasidic schools for girls were not built until the 70s, primarily in, among the women that I was studying, little girls' mothers and grandmothers, and sometimes even great-grandmothers, they were fourth generation there, were primarily speakers of English. Now, I call it Hasidic English, but it is English, because they actually weren't trained in Yiddish. They didn't study Yiddish as an academic subject, because the schools that they went to were Orthodox, but not Hasidic. So Orthodox schools teach prayer in Hebrew, a mixture of Hebrew and Aramaic, and English. So these girls actually now women, did not actually learn Yiddish. They knew some, but they weren't so fluent. Now, little girls today are fluent. They receive a true bilingual education, so they're quite fluent, but they see their mothers speaking English, and they want to be like their mothers. 
and and their mothers are speaking English. So there's a huge emphasis on continuity. And even though Yiddish is seen as a form of continuity, the ways that girls can actually do continuity today is to speak English like their mothers. What has stayed with you from this research? I think I went into the research with a very secular perspective on religion. What I came away with was a real respect for many of the women that I worked with, a respect about their seriousness and a respect for the ways that they work on their own sense of faith and belief. Another thing that I really came away with was the cultural nature of childhood. I have kids of my own now, and I got married during the field work. And um, having seen Hasidic child-rearing practices before I had children and now rearing my own children, I often compare the two, and I try to disentangle what's Jewish, what's North American, what's New York. An impossible task probably, but... It really, I think, made me reflect on the cultural nature of religion and childhood in ways that I probably wouldn't have if I hadn't been in the community. Ayala Fader is an assistant professor of anthropology at Fordham, and she's the author of Mitzvah Girls. That book's forthcoming from Princeton University Press. WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. This has been Fordham Conversations. You can find our podcast at WFUV.org or listen to past shows in our audio archives on that same page. You can also email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, and as always, love to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful weekend.